You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, If you were not here last week, um, I would encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to do it already, uh, go back and watch or listen to the message from last week um, as Chip opened up the first part of 1 John chapter 2. Um, as John talks about the assurance that we can have that we belong to God, a uh, very encouraging message. So take time to go back and, and watch that if you weren't here with us. Um, today, we're going to move on in this letter of 1 John. And um, we're going to be looking in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Uh, we're actually going to kind of move throughout the letter because a lot of what John says, he weaves all throughout uh, the content of this letter. But in this specific text, it's, it's broken up into um, two halves. Um, and in verses 7 and 8, um, John tells us, here's, here's the test that we have um, of testing this, the reality of this new life that we've been given in Christ. Then when he comes to the next part of, of this section, um, he describes how this is carried out in two different ways. And, and what's going to happen is, as we read this morning, um, we're really issued one of two things. We're either issued a warning or a promise. Um, there's an issue, uh, a, a warning issued in verses 9 and 11 um, that says, if you are someone who professes to be a Christian, yet goes on living in hate, um, that you are doomed to darkness. Not a place that any of us probably would think that we want to be. But in the middle of that, in verse 10, there's a promise issued. And John says that people who love live in the light. Um, they are truly born again, that they have come to know God. So the question that we want to ask is, well, what does it look like to live in the light, to truly love? If you look at your sermon notes, whether it's on the back of the bulletin or even in the the app there, um, you'll notice I I have a couple of statements with some fill in the blanks. Um, I love blank, period. This is for you to take a moment and just contemplate. What are some things that you might stick in that blank? Chocolate, maybe. Um, puppies. I don't know the things that, that you love. Um, but then there's statement number two. I love blank. And I've even given you an exclamation point. Um, some of you in this room are exclamation point abusers. I'm not. You only need one. But what would you put in that line? Maybe your wife, um, Jesus, chocolate, um, I I don't know. We might, some of us struggle like all day trying to figure out which one we would put a certain something in. But here's what I want to submit to you this morning. Don't you think that it's a bit odd that we use the same word to describe the supposed feelings that we have about our spouse and our kids and chocolate and coffee and our favorite team and Jesus? Something seems a bit off. I don't think it's that those things are messed up. I think it's that maybe we have an issue with our definition or our understanding of what love is. 
In this letter of 1 John, there are 105 verses. In those 105 verses, John uses the word love over 25 times. That means a quarter of this letter almost is taken up with him talking about this. In the New Testament, there are three different words that are used to, that are translated love. And they're all different. And so it's important to understand them. Um, one of them is eros, E-R-O-S. Um, this describes physical love. Now, this is actually the word that we derive our word erotic from. But so that you understand, this word has not always had some sort of sexual or sensual implication to it. It simply means physical love. Then you have the word phileo, um, not to be confused with phileo fish. Um, as someone told me earlier, the first thing they thought of when I said that in the first service was phileo fish. And I was like, okay. So different, different word. Phileo is the word for brotherly love. Um, you probably know this, but this is where the city of Philadelphia gets its name. It's the city of brotherly love. Then finally, you have the word agape. Agape describes a very, very heightened, deeply rooted love. A love that sacrifices or gives without expecting anything in return. A love that would empty itself uh, for the sake of someone else. Um, agape is the love that the Father has for us. And this is the word that John is using in his letter. Understanding that, with that in mind, what does it mean to truly love? Well, let's take a look. First um, John chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 7. He writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John says, an old commandment you've had from the beginning. This is what I'm giving you. What commandment is he talking about? Well, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark for a moment. Mark 12. <clears throat> Mark chapter 12, verse 28. It says, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all, Jesus? Well, Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus answers our question. He makes it very, very clear that this is the pinnacle of obeying and emulating the heart of God. To love God and to love others. But then if you'll go back into 1 John, notice here in verse 8, 
John has begun by saying an old commandment that I gave, I'm giving you. It's not a new one, but now all of a sudden he says at the same time, it is a new commandment. Make up your mind. Which is it? Well, it's both. And here's how we understand this. Um, John says that it is true in him. It is new in Christ. The, the way, the reason, the why and the how behind how this can be possible is that we had this law, we had this commandment from the beginning, but Jesus came and it was manifested and it was fulfilled in him. John 3.16, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? God loved the world so much that he did what? He sent me. He sent his only son that whoever will believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is the love of God that he sent his son. Well, back here in 1 John, look in chapter 4, verse 10. John says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we understand that this commandment has been fulfilled. It came to life. It's been made new. It's been manifested in and through Jesus. But there's more. Because here's what John says in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you and in us. How is this working? Well, this is possible because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What did Jesus say to the people in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5? He said, as I have come and I'm going to live through you, now you are the light of the world. The night that Jesus knows that he is, he's going to be arrested um, he washes his disciples' feet. He breaks bread with them. He has what we now refer to as the Last Supper. But if you look with me in the Gospel of John, in chapter 13, look at what Jesus says immediately following this. He says, John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, they've just witnessed Jesus wash their feet. They're about to, they, they still don't get this, but they're about to watch Jesus lay down his life for them. He's going to die on the cross. Jesus has just said, look back in verse 34 here, because there's something very specific Jesus says. I'm telling you, this is a new commandment. Love one another. And now here's the significance. Just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. I've set the example. This is what it looks like. So the question for you and I to ask is, is this commandment being manifested and fulfilled in and through my life? 
Is this taking place? Back in 1 John, he says, the true light is already shining. Is that the case? Is this true light shining in and through our lives? John is about to tell us, here's how we can know. Look at verse 9. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and yet but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes." I said a minute ago, John has woven this theme all throughout this letter. If you turn just a page over into chapter 3, take a look at verse 11. He says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother Abel. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, friends, we, we say that we love our brother, that we love our sister. But do we love them enough to serve them? Do we love them enough to wash their feet? The first summer that I was pastor here, one summer Sunday, People came walking in and there were buckets of water and towels placed around the room. I don't know if anyone here remembers this, but a man who I was friends with walked up to me and said, hey, now I know what this looks like, but surely you're not going to actually have us wash each other's feet, are you? And I said, yes, I, I am. And he said, okay. And he left. (laughs) Why did he leave? Because it's very awkward and uncomfortable. That's probably part of the reason why when Jesus knelt down to wash the disciples' feet, they started arguing with him. Like, no, Jesus, we should wash your feet. It's very uncomfortable and awkward. And folks, in the grand scheme of things, uh, I'm not speaking for everybody in this room, but worldwide, we got pretty clean feet. Jesus was looking at some nastiness, I assure you. But do we love one another enough to intentionally insert ourselves into the dirt of one another's lives? To walk into the the uncomfortable and the awkward. We say that we love our brother, but we, do we love them enough to give and expect nothing in return? 
I know that there are numerous times in my life when I have given and I have said, hey man, you don't owe me anything. Don't you worry about it. And then it's like a week or so later, you're thinking like, well, dang, like a thank you note would have been good. What's the deal? I thought they didn't owe me anything. We say that we love our brother. We say that we love our sister. But do we love them enough to pray for them? And I don't mean that we say, hey man, I'll be praying for you. Do we love them enough to just do it? Right then, right there. In a parking lot, in a restaurant, in the grocery store, over the phone. Hey, before I hang up with you, can I pray for you? Do you know in all my years, I've never had anyone say no when I've asked that question? Never. Sometimes they're surprised. Oh, well, yeah. Never have I had anybody go, yeah, so no. Maybe when we hang up, but not now. It's just always, yes, let's do it. Do we love others enough that we will pray for them when they may never know that we've prayed for them? Like, you know people right now who... They, they want to and they need to be healed. You know people who are bearing burdens that people can't carry by themselves. Are you interceding for them? Getting on your knees, your face, your kitchen table, wherever it is, and just talking to the Lord on their behalf? Do we love them enough to intercede for them? We say that we love one another. We say that we love our brother or sister. Do we love them enough to forgive them? Some of us in this room right now are carrying bitterness. You carried it in here this morning. You carried it in here last week. You may have been carrying it in here for years. And it's doing absolutely nothing but rotting your soul. And all that needs to happen to get the rot out of your soul is for you to trust that God is the just judge, not you. And remember what Jesus said. He said, hey, this is how to pray. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we what? Forgive those who trespass against us. You know, and if you don't, I'm going to deliver the news right now. People that love you and that you love are going to hurt you. They're going to screw up. They're going to, they're going to just jack it all up royally. And sometimes they may not even have the wherewithal to ask for forgiveness. Do we love them enough to forgive? Do we love them enough to pray, to serve them, to carry their burdens? Back here in 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 16. We're asking the question, okay, well, what does it look like then to love? 
Well, he says, by this, we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's stop right there for a moment, because I think that there's some confusion that we may even stumble over this verse, and here's why. We read this, Jesus laid down his life for us. Yes, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. But then he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And see, I think that a lot of us read that and we're like, now look, man, I jump in front of a train for my kids, I'd take a bullet for my spouse, but not just anybody. I don't really believe that John in this instance is saying that we've got to be willing to die for everybody else. Let's talk about what it really means to lay down our life. I'd use Mondays, but Mondays are like, those are just off limits. Uh, Everybody, you know, when we got to go back to work, it's just unfair. Let's take Saturdays, okay? Saturdays, Let's go back to what I asked earlier, or the the question, the statement, I love Saturdays. I don't know if a period or an exclamation point goes after it, but I love Saturdays. Do you know that most people don't need your help on Mondays? Or like Wednesdays? You know when people need your help? Saturday. That day when you have like two things on your agenda— Sleep and then do nothing. That's when our brothers and sisters need our help. And see, that conversation that we have to have with the Lord maybe is, Hey Lord, I kind of had an agenda today, and I know you know it because you're God, but apparently you're wanting to interrupt that. Well, I love you, and I love my brother and my sister, so I am laying down my agenda. I'm laying down my life today, and if this is your will, your will be done. I get my keys. I go help my brother. Laying down our life doesn't mean that we have to take a bullet for everybody, but it may mean that our plans for Saturday get interrupted. It may mean that we go into work dirty because we pulled over to the side of the road to help somebody. One of the greatest barriers that we have in loving one another, um, in the words of the, the 70s rock song, we are hooked on a feeling. I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Are you familiar with the word charity? Most of our familiarity with this word uh, is with the way that we've begun to use it as a culture. When we talk about charity uh, in the United States of America, here in the 21st century, and even 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, what we mean is giving to the poor. Hey, what are you going to do with all those clothes you're not wearing anymore? Oh, I'm going to give them to charity. We have butchered the meaning of this word. Because charity actually refers to genuine Christian love. 
Charity is Christian love being manifested and lived out. I don't know if you've ever had or taken the opportunity to read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Um, Incredible book. But in it, Lewis has an entire chapter on charity. And I want to read to you this morning um, just a couple of things that he says in this chapter. He says, charity means love in the Christian sense. But love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It's a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves and we must learn to have about other people. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. I got to be straight with you. I don't know that I entirely agree with Lewis's idea here that maybe sometimes uh, we should just fake it. But faking it is not what Lewis is getting at. What he's getting at is that there are times that you and I are not going to feel like doing what is right. But if we do what is right, it will blow our mind how many times we'll wind up feeling like doing it. He goes on. Some writers use the word charity to describe not only Christian love between human beings, but also God's love for man and man's love for God. About the second of these two, people are often worried. They are told they ought to love God, but they cannot find any such feelings in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Nobody can always have devout feelings, and even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. Friends, I want to submit to you this morning that our greatest difficulty in obeying the, the, the Lord in Him saying to love one another, our greatest difficulty with this is not in that we do not know how. Jesus set the example for us. He has sent the Spirit to dwell within us, to guide us, and to lead us. Uh, Our greatest obstacle is not that we don't know how. It's just that very, very often, we very, very simply just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. whether because it's Saturday morning or whether it's because I had plans or whatever it may be. 
a lot of times that we have the opportunity to love one another, we just don't feel like it. And again, when it comes to the idea of inconvenience, you guys realize that we can't like look down our calendar and say, you know, if somebody was going to inconvenience me, Tuesday would be good. So I'll just put that out there for everybody. It doesn't work that way. Because here's the thing. You realize that the person that, that you may be inconvenienced by, that they're probably being inconvenienced even more than you are by whatever it is that's going on. Plus, they're bearing the burden that's brought them to the place that they've come and even had to ask you for help with it. So they're bearing an even greater burden. Are you with me? We just don't really get to plan this out. And this is a struggle for us. So back to the point, it comes back to our feelings very, very often. And God knows, he knew and he knows that we're going to struggle with this. Take a look with me in Jeremiah chapter 17 for just a moment. Very close to the middle of the Old Testament, middle of your Bible, right after Isaiah. Look at what the Lord says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So follow your heart. That makes a real warm, great internet meme kind of thing, right? But it's a big load. Do not follow your heart. Your heart will take you to some devastating places because it is deceitful above all things. We cannot grasp how far off the ledge our hearts are. God goes on, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What God says here is so simple, yet so complex and so powerful. The Lord says that your feelings and my feelings are deceitful above all else. They will lead us astray. Our feelings will hang us out to dry. They will deceive us. They will lie to us. They will give us the business. But I want you to notice that the Lord does not say that he rewards us according to our feelings. God says, I test and search the heart and the mind. And I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I know your hearts, I know your minds, I know your feelings. They will lead you astray. What I am looking for and what I desire from my children is simple. Obedience. It would be a ridiculous question for me to ask you this morning. Do you think God desires for us to desire to obey him? Of course he does. 
Does God want you and I to hunger and desire to obey him? Absolutely. But you know what else God wants? He wants you and I to obey him even when we don't desire it. Because he knows you're not always going to feel like doing what I've told you to do. And I've even graced some of you in here with being parents. So you'll just get a whole visual of this. Sometimes I don't really care if you feel like it. I just need you to do it for your good and mine. God knows our hearts. Back to 1 John. Chapter 4. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. Do you want to be that shining light, that light in the darkness? Well, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I think that we hear 1 Corinthians 13 read and used so often in weddings that we think that that's the only place it belongs. And that is far from the truth. I want to ask you just to prayerfully take to heart what the Apostle Paul says here. Paul says love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't keep looking around what everybody else has and become obsessed of, I need that, I need this. I deserve that more than she does. Love doesn't pridefully boast. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't lord over others. Love is most certainly not rude.
Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. It's not resentful. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures in all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Lord Jesus, would you bring us to a place of repentance today? Over the places in our hearts in our lives where we have failed to love one another? Would you bring us to a place of repentance over our pride? Over bitterness? Bring us to repentance over selfishness, Lord. Lord Jesus, Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that you did not cling to your rights as God, but that you emptied yourself, you became one of us so that you could show us what it truly looks like to love. The night Jesus was arrested, not too, too long before that happened, Jesus was in a room with his disciples seated around the table, and he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood, blood of the new covenant. And I'm going to spill it for you. And so every time you take this bread and this cup, remember. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we have the very, very distinct privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. I want to encourage you um, in just a moment that whether you, you come by yourself or with a friend or with your family, 
uh, that you take a moment to prayerfully remember that this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atonement for our sins. Jesus laid down his life so that you and I might have life. We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.